0: Today on the show, we have Matt Pfeiffer. Matt is the CEO of a company called Selling to the Masses. This company helps early-stage consumer product companies get and keep their products on the shelves of the country's top retailers. They're based in Northwest Arkansas, Bentonville. Bentonville, if you guys don't know, it's the headquarters of Walmart. So there's a lot of consumer product companies that are based out of there. Matt began his career back at Walmart. He spent 13 years there. He served a variety of key leadership roles in areas of operations, marketing, human resources, and mergers and acquisitions while working in the U.S. and throughout Asia. If you want to get on the shelves of Walmart, Matt's the guy to call. He knows everything. In this interview, we talk about the process of getting on the shelves of big-name retail outlets and how to stay there. It's one thing to get on there, but to stay on the shelves is a whole other story. Then we talk about the process of when you do pitch your product to the buyers, Of these stores what the buyers are thinking what are the questions they're gonna ask you what are uh, what are their key needs for you with bringing your product to the market then we discuss about different brokers that can represent you in Arkansas brokers are a dime a dozen there's so many out there and it's hard to find the right broker that can represent you to sell your product to stores we talk about the prices they charge and how to find the right broker Then we go on to talk about private labeling and how it's becoming bigger in the market today. And how packaging is vital to your success. Without the right packaging, your company could fail. If you're a consumer product company and you're trying to make it in a large retail outlet like Walmart, then this is a show you will not want to miss. I'm serious, guys. I own a consumer product. And when I went down to his CPG school back in November, I met so many contacts. I met so many people that could help me get onto walmart get on all these big name retail outlets and give me advice to help me get to the next level just by making that trip to bentonville was a completely launch in where i was with my products so this is one show you're not going to want to miss and if you're a consumer product company (laughs) after this i guarantee you're going to head down to northwest arkansas and go to his consumer product school here in april so Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Arctic Stick. Arctic Stick's a new innovative product to use a cool and flavor your drink. I love using this product when I'm going on the river, on the lake, maybe going out for a run, or even going to the gym. It allows you to keep your bottle beverage colder for a longer period of time. I don't know about you guys, but I don't like to drink warm beverages. Arctic Stick keeps it cold to the last drop. And not only that, you can fill the Arctic Stick full of any kind of liquid. You can freeze it if you want to cool. Or if you want to flavor your drink, you can twist the top, drop in your drink. It'll flavor your drink. Arctic Stick is the next big product to hit the market. So if you want to be prepared to take on your summer, go to ArcticStick.com. Check out what they got going on. That's www.arcticstick.com Now, what you guys have been all been waiting for. Let's get into today's show with Matt Pfeiffer. Welcome to the University of Young Entrepreneurs. On today's show, we have Matt Pfeiffer. How's it going, Matt? Good. How are you doing? Good. Good. I'm happy to have you on the show. Uh, Matt and I met here last fall. I went to a CPG school. Honestly, uh, it changed me. It, it. I was like a little kid in a candy store. I went down there. There were so many people down there that can help you, networking, contacts. It was a great event. So we'll talk more later about the event we got going on here in april but today i want to learn about matt his background where he started how he got to where he is today and i have some good questions for him so matt get started tell me about where you came from and how it led up to where you are today
1: yeah so i grew up in a little town outside chicago illinois and um the thing that i remember most about my childhood was as a 10 year old the the neighborhood paper boy had decided that he was ready to to move on he had outgrown the route and uh I remember begging my parents to let me take over that paper route and uh, so from the time I was 10 years old walking up and down the the streets in the neighborhood you know knocking on doors delivering papers uh, collecting money you know the bigger you smile the bigger they tip and and so I kind of got the entrepreneurial bug early on and uh, we moved and and uh, you know into a new community where I didn't really know anybody so I, I mowed lawns for a little bit until I was old enough and then when I was 15 years old, I, I convinced my parents to um, to let me ride my bicycle. It was three miles, not really the safest route, but <laughs> three miles each way, so I could uh, take a summer job. And um, uh, it was just a, it was just a great experience. So I grew up working and working hard, and enjoyed having extra money and
0: it teaches you a lot of lessons. It does a lot of growing lessons. Up. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I. growing up I did all kinds of fundraisers I don't know if you guys had like St. Jude's bike or for Boy Scouts I'd be the guy that sold the most popcorn
1: same way yeah yeah
0: I live for that stuff and it just kind of as I grew up I started finding more competitions and more things to do and I made it into my businesses yeah so it's uh, it's really funny how you're raised and how the atmosphere you're in affects how you are
1: you know interestingly I grew up in a, you know, my grandfather, both of my grandfathers were executives for big corporations and uh, my dad worked for a big company and and having growing up, I think entrepreneurship might've been the way that I kind of rebelled against my father, you know, not in a, you know, in a direct way, but I was like, I'm not really sure I want this life. And so I'm going to go out and kind of find my own thing.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Uh, so tell me, You've had a wide range of experience. I mean, you've worked with Walmart over the years. You've seen what it takes for taking products to market. You've had your own startups, and also you've worked internationally. Tell me what what struggles. uh, What did you learn most working internationally with other companies?
1: Yeah, I think um, fortunately for me, when I was with Walmart, I was able to learn a lot of um, what would have been really painful lessons if they would have been on my dime. I mean, the benefit of Going to work for a big company was. I was able to see a lot of the country, see a lot of the world, uh, have a lot of experiences in uh, in markets outside the United States, and uh, it really helped me to to minimize, you know, many of the pains that I probably would have faced um, had I jumped into the international arena without that experience. But. You know, you can't underestimate the, the, the differences in business culture from place to place. And it's easy to go to Central America and assume that everything in Central America is the same, and in South America, and in Asia. And the reality is, is every community is different, and, uh, and every country is different. So yeah. I think the, the thing I would say is you, you've got to go into those situations very humble. You've got to listen much more than you speak. And I tell you, as a 30-year-old expat living in Tokyo uh, and working for Walmart, um, you know we went into that place with a lot of preconceived notions working for the world's largest retailer largest company yeah and uh, and so I think uh, from for me uh, you know I, I wish I could go back and do that ex- that 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 experience again just because I think I'd be a much better listener now did
0: did you speak the language
1: not at all no How so was that uh, you know if you're they say that the um, the one of the worst ways that you can, you know, ruin an expat is give them a cushy, you know, assignment and, uh, living in Japan, you know, obviously there was a language barrier, but I'll tell you, it was, it was a tougher adjustment for me going from Bentonville, Arkansas to, you know, 12 million, you know, city of 12 million people than, than the language barrier. So, uh, it was, it was relatively easy. I had a, uh, an assistant that went with me everywhere that I went and translated. And so,
0: That's good. I guess I always say if you're gonna go to another country it'd be difficult. I, I almost got a minor in Spanish mm. but I found out my sister lived overseas. Mm. She lived well, no, she lived in Mexico for a while. She was gonna go to Spain. But uh if you're forced into it, you will learn it. And if you're just gonna try and learn it by the book, it's not gonna work.
1: Right. Well <laughs> and and this isn't an excuse, but when when the company asked me to go, it was supposed to be a short term assignment and I thought, Well, there's no reason to spend any time in language lessons yeah. and all that. And it turned into a longer assignment. And one of my greatest regrets is having not immersed myself in it and learned yeah. the language. So it's a beautiful culture. And uh, we've, we've been back once since and have another trip planned. So.
0: Oh, well, good. Good. I want to go into, uh, you work with a lot of CPG, uh, consumer product companies and you've learned a lot from them. And what was it? You had a quote you had said for the small amount of companies that actually succeed. What, what is that on Harvard business?
1: Yeah. So a guy named Clayton Christensen who's done a lot of research, a lot of publishing uh, for Harvard business school. He says that 30,000 new consumer products go to market every year and 95% of them fail. So, wow. you know, one of the things, <clears throat> one of the conversations I have with entrepreneurs all the time is I ask them the question, are you sure you want to do this? Because, chances are you're going to fail and there are a lot of, of more fun ways for you to be spending your time yeah. uh, than than in pursuit of this. So I, I actually spend a lot of time trying to talk entrepreneurs out of it.
0: Isn't that the truth? I I, I caught myself doing that third day. I had a guy come to me at a great idea and he had wrote on paper and he thought that within a year he could be up on the market and selling. I looked at it. He thought maybe 15 grand. Well, I helped him out, go, got a quote turns out is 180 grand to even mm. get to sales, and that is best case scenario. Yeah. And what people don't know is it takes so long, it takes on average three to five years, if you're lucky. I found out the struggles, the constant uh, issues you have, and it costs a lot of money. And it's gotta be more about your passion than really just yeah. trying to take a product and make money. Well,
1: a lot of people think about and talk about you know, the democratization of innovation, how much easier it is today to to sit down with someone with an idea for a product and within a couple of hours you've got 3D drawings and you've yeah. got you know, how it's so easy to find a manufacturing partner abroad and and you know access by way of the internet to uh, buyers at major retailers but the problem is that democratization has made it so much easier for so many other ambitious people that it's really created this this crowding this overcrowding in the marketplace and it's there's so many more items now that are going to market simultaneously it Makes it that much harder to get one breakthrough.
0: What do you think with aspect two, making it easier with crowdfunding? I mean, it's really changed how inventors and innovators can get things to market a lot cheaper.
1: Yeah, and I think in the early days of um, of, of you know of of crowdfunding, I think it's going to be great. But I think at some point, that too will become so crowded that even the best companies will get lost.
0: Yeah, because a lot of I'm actually sitting down with an interview here in a couple of weeks with a famous inventor, Chris Hawker. Mm-hmm. And if anybody has seen the coolest cooler, I talk about it all the time, he's awesome. Mm-hmm. But he redesigned it, and the coolest cooler actually that was his second crowdfunding campaign. The first one they wanted to raise 125 grand, they failed. He raised 103. Went to Trident Design, Chris Hawker helped redesign it, mm-hmm. launched it. Well, they raised 13.2 million. Yeah. But companies are out there now and they're focusing their time on doing just crowdfunding campaigns right. because there's a lot of money to be made and you're testing the market to see if it's even viable before hitting it. Right. So it takes your risk away.
1: Yeah. And, and obviously the the companies on Kickstarter and on Indiegogo that, you know, raise tons of money quickly, get all the press. But the reality is a, a by far greater number of those campaigns are not successful.
0: Yeah, most aren't. And they say within the first 48 hours, if you hit 30% of your funding goal, you have a much better chance of, for one, mm. hitting your goal, for two, getting on, if you're Kickstarter, getting on the front page, and three, going viral and getting a lot of publicity. Right. And if you don't hit it within 48 hours, you're gonna have a long, tough campaign. Right. So, I wanna jump in, uh, <clears throat> what, what is the majority of roadblocks or struggles you see with other consumer product companies out there?
1: A lot of it has to do, and this is not uh, that unique from entrepreneurship generally, but it's it's capitalization. I mean, most of these folks uh, and companies really don't realize just how expensive it is um, in, in building a team and, and um, you know, getting back and forth for buyer meetings and uh, the amount of money required in slotting fees and advertising allowances and all those things that really go into that financial formula. So, capitalization is the where, where I would probably spend the majority of my time helping these entrepreneurs figure out what is it going to cost to take this consumer product to market <laughs> and where in the world are those funds going to come from? Because investing in consumer products, it's not like information technology, which everybody's excited about. Yeah. you know Consumer products are not nearly as sexy. And, and because of their high fail rate, it's a lot more challenging to raise the necessary funding.
0: It's difficult. I learned that the hard way by trying things and spending money and working extra jobs along the way. And that's what I learned is tell everybody not to do that. I mean, learn from my mistakes and try to find out at the beginning exactly what it's going to cost. But don't just look yourself. Have mentors and professionals help you look yeah. and see because I was blinded by it. And nobody that somebody that hasn't taken a product to market or invented anything, they have no idea the struggles. Hmm. It, it's hard. And you are talking about funding. What would you suggest for a consumer product company that has little or no sales or track record what is the best route for them to go for trying to get investment? Yeah,
1: well, I think again, as is true in, of entrepreneurship generally, you start with family, friends, and fools, yeah. right? That the people that are within your network that you can uh, that are loyal to you, excited about you, that are that are friendly to the idea. Uh, I think that's the, I think that's all. I think that's a universal truth. The other thing I would say, and this has less to do with the raising of money and more to do with the burn rate. So allowing. Yeah. A smaller amount of capital to go further is uh, being satisfied with incrementalism, not, you know, having a, a product and saying I've got to have this in you know 5,000 Walmart stores. I've got to have this in 10,000 Walgreens it's stores. It's about being satisfied, selling to the local store, selling on a regional basis, selling on Amazon.com, and continuing to reinvest the proceeds, the profit from those initial steps into growth.
0: If you get big too fast, you just kill your company. Yeah, that's right. Have you seen any instances where that's happened? I mean, you know,
1: I'm writing an article right now that that's called uh, "When When uh, Something to the Effect." Uh, the title escapes me, but it's basically "When Everything uh, Bad That Can Happen Does." Uh, I've yeah. met a guy, um, a real guy, real product. He had a, an amazing job, the kind of job that, as kids, we grew up saying, "That's the job that I want." Yeah. And he was doing really well in his career, and he had an idea for a product, and so he he decided he would kind of step away from this amazing career that he created for himself, developed this product. And for the first couple of years, everything was easy. I mean, uh, in terms of developing the product and sourcing the product. And he had a couple of really nice uh, wins with major retailers. Well, now the guy is, you know, a million two in personal debt with his, uh, you know, his home secured as collateral. Wow. Uh, He, he was on the shelves of thousands of retail store shelves and was kicked out uh, so he, he's got almost 300,000 sellable units sitting in inventory oh, wow. a million to in personal debt and just found out that he's got brain cancer so
0: wow that's y- you that's think hard. about
1: all these horrible things coming together I guarantee you he would not do it again if he could go back
0: jeez and that that's the thing I mean it's not always hard to get on the shelves the thing is if people don't buy it and you're stuck with inventory,
1: you're screwed. Yeah. Well, and in his situation, because he didn't have any consumer product marketing experience, he attached himself to, uh, you know, quote unquote experts that presented themselves as, um, you know, people that could help him accomplish these things. And, um, he just aligned himself with the wrong people and, um, he didn't ask the right questions and, uh, I mean, it, it's cost him everything
0: actually goes in. I was going to ask you uh, what I found out when I came to Bentonville and I've been here multiple times since uh, there's buyers or buyer reps or a dime a dozen. That's there right. are so many consultants and reps down here and you don't know where to go. So what would you suggest for if you're trying to find one? What do you look for? and how do you align them with where your company's going? What is your best match? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. And I think whether you're looking for uh, sales and marketing partners, or maybe even an established CPG company that would take uh, your idea and and roll it into their uh, portfolio of of products, I think everything always starts at the store shelf. If, in, in most cases, someone who takes a product to market um, it's not completely unique. There's always something out there that would be similar. Um, so I would always go to the store and find a product that is, is close enough to what you're doing. And then I would begin doing research and find out who manufactures it, uh, who's doing the sales and marketing. If you can find somebody that's actually doing um, what you're doing in a similar category, has relationships at the retailer, Or retailers where your product should be sold. It's always so much easier to do that because you're right. In a place like Bentonville, you throw a rock in any direction, and you're going to hit a broker. You know, maybe maybe two. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's like you know churches and brokers in this town. Throw a rock in any direction, you're going to hit one. So, you've got to be incredibly, incredibly careful. And, And the thing that most people probably realize but don't fully understand is that brokers don't care about the long-term health and viability of your company because they're paid based on top-line sales. Yep. So, uh, And in the case of my friend, uh, his, his brokers talked him into spending really stupid money on uh, advertising that, frankly, didn't deliver. And they really didn't have any sort of uh, stake in those decisions because all they cared about was driving top-line growth.
0: Yeah, I found that out from just a few people that had came to me. It's uh they wanna get your get you excited and get you on a large scale, but they gotta look in effect too for the long term because yeah. if you go on a large scale, like you said before, right away, you could kill your company. Yeah. You could spend three to four years to get to that point and then kill it within a few months. That's right. And that's the scary part. Uh, what would you suggest? There's a lot out there. Some charge different kinds of fees. Some may charge uh, hourly, monthly. What is, how can you find if somebody is not a crook, but not reputable and they're trying to gouge you with prices? What is the rate going for uh, buyer rep out there?
1: Well, it's going to vary. And I know that's not a good answer for your question, but there are some people that will work for 3% and some people that demand 10%. There are some wow. people, there are some people, well, you know, if it's an early stage company, they don't have any traction whatsoever. You're looking at 18 months minimum
0: exactly. before
1: you're going to have your product on the shelf and start receiving cash. So if you're gonna if you're gonna string this this manufacturer's rep or this broker along for 18 months without a paycheck, they're going to want a premium for for their time, especially considering risk. And so, a lot of my friends who are brokers uh, and established and doing really well, they'll say. You know, we don't take anybody who's brand new uh, if you've got your products in this many stores and we'll take it from there. and We'll introduce some efficiencies. We'll make some introductions, help you get, you know, gain more traction. Um, it's a lot more challenging to find somebody that's willing to take a product from nothing.
0: There's a lot of work. I mean, I see that and they obviously have to have some money for their time. Uh, what about consultants? I mean, how do you know if a consultant is just out there to get your money, or they are actually want to help
1: you? I think the smartest way to work with consultants is to create vested interest. And one of the things that we do uh, on a very, very limited basis is um, we will be essentially compensated board members. So we don't have equity positions in the companies, but what we say is um, we're going to sign up for the for the long haul. We're going to sit as board members. So we have really no day-to-day operating responsibility for us. It's really more about um, helping run down uh, the experts. Who are the sales and marketing experts? Who are the, the product development experts? Who are the package design experts? So we're able to bring those people in from our own network and then help the, the entrepreneurs make good decisions, meet the right people, set strategy, et cetera. So we've got a vested interest in the long-term growth of the yeah. company because we're not just trying to you know, get the next
0: PO. You're, you're basically a connector, a matchmaker. That's right. You you put people in with the right people because you've gained them relationships over the years. That's
1: right. And in the information technology space, I mean, you look at Techstars and Y Combinator. Um, you know, these accelerator programs are all about taking equity, uh, which I don't think works as well in consumer products. I'd rather, um, you know, be compensated based on that top line
0: growth. I agree with you because a consumer product is totally different from a tech company. Right. What, uh, how do you, here's my next question. How do you get your product on the shelves of a large retail outlet like Walmart or Target? And how do you keep them there? What do you got to do?
1: Yeah, you know, interestingly, when, when we saw the research out of Harvard, and, um, you know, Dr. Christensen says that of the 95% of products that fail, they fail because they don't do the job that consumers have hired them to do. In other words, products fail because products suck, right? Exactly. And, uh, and what I felt like his research failed to address and acknowledge is how difficult it is to get even a great product on the shelf and how much harder it is to keep it on the shelf. Because to get a product on the shelf, um, you know, a small percentage of that, uh, a small part of the decision that the buyer makes is about the product itself. The rest of the decision is really about, you know, do they have confidence in you uh, as a as a business owner or as a business manager, to keep all the promises that you've made, can you deliver quantity in this timing? Can you keep the stores in stock? Uh, are you going to make the investment in marketing to drive shoppers into the store to look for your product on their shelves? That's the that's the trickier part. So, uh, I think that the secret to, to getting on the shelf is to is to start slowly. I think it's to. Um, you know, use all of the, take advantage of the low hanging fruit, you know, eBay and Amazon. Exactly. Even, even local brick and mortar retail stores have made it easy for someone to get started. You know, Walmart's got a local purchase program that allows a a person to to sell in one store at a time. Most people don't understand how to navigate it. It's a little bit complex and bureaucratic, but there are those opportunities. And so that would, that's what I would say is start slow. And then make sure that when you do swing for the fences and and, and try to get your product on the shelves of thousands of stores, make sure you've got your stuff together. Make sure you've got a team in place that's going to be able to deliver on all the promises that you've made that buyer.
0: When you do do go to like a a store like Walmart, do they put you on a large scale right away or do they test you? What is usually the procedure they take for... Taking you on,
1: right? Well, if you're Procter and Gamble and you're spending tens of millions of dollars on advertising, they're going to give you nationwide distribution. But if you're if you're a brand new company with a brand new product, chances are they're going to give you one distribution center, which is going to be you know maybe a hundred stores, and then they'll roll you out one distribution center at a time,
0: and then test the market and go from there. That's right.
1: Yeah, and see, you know, again. You know, it's it's kind of like a sixteen year old with with a with a driver's license. You know, you don't just give them the keys and say have fun. You say, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna let you drive down to the corner store, and then I'm gonna let you drive to school, and then you know, you give them more and more responsibility. Slowly
0: gain that relationship. That's right. When you do go in the meetings and you uh, meet with these buyers, what are the three main things they're looking at for you and your product? What are they thinking?
1: Well, so, so obviously product performance is is key, right? Yep. I mean, you want to you want a product that's not gonna uh, disappoint um, shoppers. The other is is price comparative to to the to the marketplace, and the third, and I think the thing that a lot of companies um, don't think about nearly enough, but it's one of the most important things to come up in any meeting with a buyer. What are you going to invest to drive demand? What are you going to do to send? shoppers into the store because they're looking for that item you know so like marketing uh, or social media campaigns i mean traditional forms of uh of marketing whether it's television print etc but they want you to come not just with product and pricing but they want you to come with a marketing plan that says um you know here's what we're going to do to uh, make it possible and likely for more shoppers to come into the store and to these shelves because they're looking for this product.
0: That makes sense. Are they, when you do, let's say, when they do that test run of, let's say, 100 stores, do they let you pick the stores, or they? No, no,
1: no, definitely not. Well, so, uh, before I say that, I mean, it is a collaborative process. At the end of the day, the, the, the retailer is gonna decide, but if you've done your homework, if you've looked at the data and said, you know, based on your know, shopper profiles and uh, the demographics within this community and how these other items are performing based on Nielsen data, et cetera, you can come with a recommendation um, but at the end of the day the buyer is gonna make that decision
0: because if it was me my product is targeting like the, the people that work out energetic people the younger generation I would put in like Denver mm. or groups where there's college towns sure and that's I mean and we talked about social media for targeting people so you're saying people could uh, say they're on their marketing aspect if they don't have a large budget they can boost posts and help target the audience they want in yeah. the areas of a walmart
1: yeah absolutely and i would also say that you know for an early stage product you know sell it on amazon.com you know because it's a great way and, and other online retailers by the way because it's a way for you to develop a, a track record. So you don't just walk into that buyer meeting and say, here's here's my product and this is what I think it would sell in your store. <clears throat> you say, here's my product and this is what I've already sold. You know, here's here's my yeah. track record.
0: They want you to come prepared and tell them what you're going to do instead of having them, asking them because right. they, they have enough work to do themselves. Well,
1: and it's a high stakes game. I mean, you think about it, the amount of pressure that's being put on brick and mortar retailers as more and more of that business goes online that space in store is incredibly precious. And for yeah. for you with a new product to, to essentially kick out uh, an incumbent, I mean, they have to get rid of somebody to make room for you. Yeah. It's an extremely risky business and those buyers are held accountable for uh, space productivity. So on a category by category basis, every inch of shelf space has to deliver a set amount in sales and profitability. It's different by department, different by category. But it's not a it's not this random, you know, game. It's a very scientific game.
0: Well it's also hard too when you got Procter and Gamble, like you said, they're spending millions of dollars on marketing and why would they give that up when a young company would come in and they don't have that kind of budget. Right. And also you look at like Pepsi and Coke, they stock the shelves and they're always there working. I yeah. mean they work it for them.
1: Well and and don't um, you know, don't underestimate the power of, of private brands, you know, the 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 retailers are developing uh, products themselves and creating private label in order to enhance their margin. So yeah, it's it's really difficult. And if you're a one-trick pony, if you come to a retailer and you've got, you know, one product without a real vision for a, an expanded Extra line, products. it's even it's even more difficult.
0: Yeah. You were talking about private uh, labeling. Hmm. I I see that becoming bigger and bigger. What, talk about that. What do you think on that in the future coming up?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think in the early days of private label, a consumer had to give up substantially in terms, of, in terms of quality in order to get a better price. And now most consumers wouldn't know this, but the majority, if not all of the, the private label products that are sold at retailers are actually manufactured by the big national brands. So the, you're not giving up as a consumer um, nearly as much as in quality as, as you once did. And so it makes it incredibly difficult if you're a big national brand um, sometimes to justify that huge spend on marketing to a consumer that can't really tell the difference.
0: So they're trying to target, make people think that they're supporting like a smaller company versus a huge company?
1: Well, I don't know if it's um, that they're trying to um, you know, convince you of something that's not so as much as, uh, I'll just use one example, you know, Peter Pan peanut butter versus great value at Walmart. My kids love both. It's really difficult to distinguish the taste between yeah. the two. And so as a, as a savvy consumer, why in the world would I pay extra for the national brand to have the beautiful label when you got that. this other product tastes just as it's good? It's smart.
0: Yeah, I was talking the other day about uh, buying products and how I think when I'm actually purchasing them. I'm big on buying products for what they stand for. Mm. Dollar Shave Club, that's one an example. Uh, I love the innovation and what they stand for. And they're cheaper razors, but it's entrepreneurship. It's mm. a small company. I want to support that versus a big company. Apple, Steve Jobs, I buy Apple products because of what it stands for. And I believe for any company out there, it's not only the product, but it's the person behind it. It's what they're standing for. I, I was listening to, uh, is it Skimpy? The mm. drink?
1: Yeah, Skippy Mixers.
0: Yeah, and uh, she was talking. What's her name again? Megan Toole. Megan Toole. And she said it's not only about the drink. It's about a women, uh, movement for yeah. women, which I I think is awesome. And I, I don't drink that much anymore, but I would buy it just because of that. They're supporting something, and women can stand up for something.
1: I met with a woman named Teresa Brera Shaw last week who recently retired from Walmart. She ran their supplier diversity uh, department. And she said that um, consumers are willing to pay more for products that are sold by women, minority, and veteran-owned companies. So I think when you've got that story to tell, you should absolutely tell
0: it. Everybody can believe in a story, and they can relate to it, and they follow it more. Mm -hmm. I really suggest anything that you guys do out there. When you start a company, tell your story. People want to hear the struggles if you were sleeping in your vehicle yeah. or uh, you didn't, couldn't pay your bills or whatever you did along the way. People and everybody love has head. a story. It's Everybody's not, got a story. Yeah. I was going to ask you is uh, the packaging. When you're mm-hmm. talking about packaging on stores, and I always said it's 90% marketing, 10% product. It's how you package it. Right. It's how you speak out to the people that are looking at it. Tell me about the importance of it and what, some tips you could give to people on how to make people grab it not sure. want
1: to resist it. Yeah, I think a lot of people make the mistake of getting too caught up in fonts and colors when the package is really your opportunity to explain to the shopper what the product is, what the product does, and why they can't live without it. So Exactly. Depending on the product, you know, some products are so self-explanatory that, you know, the, you know, like a bathroom plunger. You know, you don't need any sort of visual to understand how the product works. Right. But there are some products that are new to the marketplace like yours, for example, it would require some explanation because you might, we would look at it and, and, and if, if, if you weren't told, you might not be sure what it is. Exactly.
0: And that's for any product coming in. It's brand new to the market and people have never seen it before. So you gotta need to teach them and it's hard to teach people. And with our attention span anymore, you have a small amount of time to get them to visualize it and think, oh, I understand that. I'm going to buy it. So I think that's the biggest thing. What about uh, packaging, having on it, U.S. made in the U.S.? How important is that for people now?
1: I've not seen the data on that, and so it would be really easy for me to, to make some you know give you some sort of an emotional response, but um, I, I think that there is some research that suggests that that the American consumer cares and will pay a little bit more for a product that's produced in the US. I think there's some data to, su- to suggest that at the end of the day consumers are looking for value and if it's made in the US great and if it's not, that's fine too. Um, I think the, the more important lesson there is, uh, and this, there's, a lot, there's so many factors involved in this, but you know, the booming of the, of the middle class in China is just one contributing factor where in many, many cases, and I think your experience has been this way as well, if you, if you can break out of this paradigm that has suggested for many years that you've gotta go overseas in order to find you know, great costs on products, there are actually American-based companies that are able to produce uh, on par, if not slightly Better. below the cost of, of what you could produce for overseas. And the thing that a lot of people don't really realize is the, the risks involved with bringing that product from overseas, And I could tell you story after story about, you know, horrible, horrible situations where uh, companies have either gotten into relationships with companies that they thought they could trust and, and they couldn't and their business was destroyed. Or, you know, issues like the port strike out in California where you've got, you know, hundreds of ships sitting offshore full of, you know, with containers Purchase. full of products that you can't get to stores. And. If you are producing product in the United States, none of those risks apply.
0: There's so many pros and cons, but I look at it for overseas. For one, your lead time is huge. That's right. You've got to have product. If you have it made in the US, you can oversee it and get it a lot quicker. Right. Sometimes well, they can it, produce That's cheaper. right. And if
1: you get it from the US, you can pick it up and ship it a case at a time if, if you need yeah. to, right?
0: You know, at the beginning I was my mind was like, Okay, there's no way I can get it cheaper. In the U.S., I have to go overseas. But what I've found out, depending on the complexity of the product, mm-hmm. it can be actually made cheaper here. Yeah, And not only made cheaper, but then you figure in the logistics, shipping, yep. everything. It makes more sense. So, and from what I've told and what I've learned is if people see, and for me, myself, you look in the back of the package, see where it's made. If it says made in the U.S.A., some people just want to support that mm-hmm. because it's buying <clears throat> in their own community, in their nation. What, over the years, what are the big, biggest lessons you've learned while working with uh, consumer product companies and being in the retail industry?
1: I am, uh, you know, as a, as a 10-year entrepreneur, I am as irrationally optimistic as they come. But it's one thing for a person like me who for 10 years has been in a variety of service-oriented businesses it's one thing to be irrationally optimistic in a, in a business that doesn't have you know, tremendous overhead and startup costs, and uh, where failure is much easier to recover than my friend with 280,000 sellable units yeah. collecting dust in a warehouse. It is such a capitally intensive and risky endeavor that um, most of the people who I have seen get in trouble, they have either gone too small, and it's, it's never uh, you know, created and sustained any sort of momentum, and so it's an idea that really dies on the vine, or the other extreme where somebody goes all in, I mean, to an extreme, and then it's just buried when yeah. the thing falls apart. So I think that has been, you know, my, my advice in almost every situation is to err on the side of conservatism, if you can, first, first of all, as an entrepreneur, if you can find somebody that is already in the space or close to the same space, and there's an opportunity to partner, let them leverage their manufacturing capability, let them leverage their sales and marketing capability, let them leverage their relationships with these retailers and you take a you know, smaller profit, but with almost no risk. If, if it was me, that's how I would do it if I could. If you can't do it that way, or for some reason you just have this burning desire to do it 100% on your own, then start small. You know, technology has made it so easy, be it eBay or Amazon or Alibaba or local purchase programs to start slow. You know, the the guys that um, started the apparel company, Life is Good, you know, they would yeah. go out and, and, and just sell it out of the back of their, you know, trunks of their car. And, and it just, it grew over time. You know, very few. There, there really are no overnight success stories in consumer products. Now, um, Kickstarter has created a few exceptions. A few, a yeah. few exceptions, right? But for the most part, you don't have these overnight success stories in CPG.
0: I sure wish there was. At first, I thought there was, but no. It's yeah. a long marathon, is the best way to put it. Right. Uh, when you worked at Walmart, um, what the companies that did come on and have their products uh, on the shelves? What are the like some of the companies that actually did succeed on a large level and are still on the shelves, what are the things that they did? How did they do that?
1: You know, the story I love to tell, because it's, um, I think it's a story that gets a lot of entrepreneurs in trouble because um, it kind of creates in their mind this, this notion that that same thing is possible. But you're, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. John Osher and the spin brush, right? The electric toothbrush with the rotating head. Yep. Guys invented the product, took it to market, created some really nice momentum. And sold it for a half a billion dollars to Procter and Gamble. I mean, that is the dream wow. of dreams for a CPG company, right? Um, so I, I think that the the companies that are successful they understand the consumer because it's a product that's been developed with the consumer in mind. They understand uh, marketing, how to talk to the shopper while they're inside the store, not just on the packaging, but with all you know, leveraging all sorts of in-store in-store media, uh, and then obviously relationships with with the with buyers. And one thing that people don't realize is, you know, buyers are not assigned to categories on a, for a career, right? So you'll have a junior buyer that'll, that'll be in a role for 12 to 18 months. And then they move on to a different category. So the, so, so the person who's buying, you know, underwear and socks today could be buying motor oil tomorrow and bicycles next year. I mean, you, you just don't know. So, um, you should never pin your hopes to a single buyer.
0: I agree with that. Uh, What I was going to say is you're talking about getting bought out and how that lucky story where he got bought out by half a billion dollars. Yeah. And so many times people say, well, are you a millionaire yet? Have, has your idea got bought out? And what they don't realize is that doesn't happen very often. Right. It. And usually once you get a lot of sales, people will copy you. If you get on a large scale, but tell me about the process getting bought out. If you start a company or a product, what is the process of it and how difficult is it?
1: Yeah. I think regardless of what space you're in as an entrepreneur, you should always have an exit strategy. So you should be able to sit here today and say, if I were ever to decide for whatever reason, now is the time to get out here. The, here are the first three phone calls that I would make. And obviously you need to start with companies that are are in the space they're selling um either complementary products or similar products or or even dissimilar products that happen to be in the same category at the same retailers where your products are sold Um, so i think i think a consumer product entrepreneur needs to have that short list of companies that if they wake up and say today is the day you know we're done here the here the three phone calls that i would make and i think that it would make a lot of sense i mean there are no secrets. Uh, people like you know want to keep their idea to themselves and so forth there are no secrets. Yeah people um, smart people in retailing and CPG spend their weeks inside stores walking shelves looking for innovation. you know some because they want to compete with it, some because they want to copy it, doesn't matter, there are no secrets. And so my point in saying that is to say if you've got that list of three companies that you would that would represent your first three phone calls if you decided that this is it, begin developing relationships with those companies now.
0: Do you just give them a call yourself or do you have an actual broker that approaches them and says, Hey, this is a letter 10. This is what I have. Would you be willing to buy out my product? Well,
1: I don't think your first, you're not suggesting this, but I don't think your first uh, correspondence with this company would be, this is who I am. Do you want to buy my company? It's really more about, Hey, we're in a similar space. Uh, You know, love to get together uh, next time you're in town or next time I'm in town, you know, just to kind of pick your brain about your business and the industry and the direction you think things are coming I think that's where you start, is you develop a friendly relationship, um, and you come you come to that conversation providing as many insights as you would hope to get.
0: I've heard a few stories, horror stories, actually, where they get large offers. People get large offers for their company, and at the end, after the due diligence, they go through the process, they back out, even after the letter of 10 saying how much they buy their company for. and people don't realize it. It just doesn't happen. They aren't going to write you a check. It's going to take time. And it's not there until the money's in the bank. It's not done until you have that in your hand and you have the money.
1: Yeah. So three years ago, we were working with a company that at the time had secured the largest on-air offer in Shark Tank history. Mark Cuban offered to write a check and just buy the company outright. They agreed to those terms on television. It made for amazing television but the deal fell apart off camera. And that's the thing that most people who watch I've the heard show. The stories. Yeah, yep. they, they watch the show and they say, you know, I wonder what this guy's doing with all his money. Well, the reality is this guy three years later is still trying to get this company off, off the ground because the deal fell through.
0: There was one not too long ago, and I know these, uh, these people turned down, they had a dating site and they uh-huh. turned down 30 million. Wow. And they saw it as the next eHarmony, a billion dollar company. But in my mind, I think, well, 30 million dollars, they could really start a lot of other things with that. But right. These folks
1: on Shark Tank, they're smart people, and you've got to recognize um, there's some things that make for great television, but nobody's going to spend 30 minutes in a studio with somebody, offer $30 million, and, no. and, and, and sign a check right then and there. I mean, the lawyers have got tons of work to yeah. do. As soon as the camera stopped
0: rolling. Mark Cuban didn't become a billionaire by That's just spreading right. checks out. That's right. Making emotional decisions about business. I know. It, it's funny watching that. A lot of people don't realize for Shark Tank. I've talked to a few people that have been on there. Yeah. And uh sometimes the deals don't go through afterwards. Yeah. I mean, they, they just find reasons not to make a deal with them because these guys, when they do partner with you, they're more of a consultant to you mm-hmm. because they have a a million other things to do. They That's aren't right. going to work hands on with you on your company all the time. They just right. have the network. And one thing that interests me when I did Shark Tank casting call, everybody there was talk about well, what it takes. If you got to, you got to sign a long list. They do a background check yeah. and check by you and everything. And what it, somebody had said is, no matter what, if you get on the show, they're going to take five percent of your sales. Hmm which I found out to be not true because Mark Cuban said, if you guys are gonna do that, then discouraging entrepreneurs, I won't be on the show anymore. Hmm. But I, that just fascinated me on that and it's amazing though that show, anybody can relate to you. If they see you have a product, they're like, you were on Shark Tank yet? Yeah. They all think Shark Tank's the way. I mean, Shark Tank is a great way. It's $4 million advertising, advertising to be on it and connections, but you don't have to be in Shark Tank to succeed.
1: Yeah, you know, I've always said that if you walked into a crowded restaurant and screamed. Uh, how many people in here have had an idea for a, for a business or for a product that doesn't exist? 80% of the hands would go up. I think the, the show has done a really good job of kind of capturing that general audience, those people that have the nine to five jobs, but sit at home you know, dreaming about, man, I've got this great yeah. idea for, I, my, my brother-in-law had an amazing idea 15 years ago for a consumer product that is still not on the shelves of retailers today that absolutely should be. And uh, I think a lot of people they have those have those big he, ideas.
0: They, they say the, the best ideas out there have never went forward. Right. And you wouldn't believe the amount of people that come to me and say, this great idea, and if you go forward with it, I'll give you half. I think to myself, yeah, it is awesome idea, but... I know how long it takes. I know yeah. the time and the chances of even succeeding. Right. I just don't have the time for it. Right. But you have a big company, right. they can do it overnight. But, okay, so, some more questions, I'm gonna go on to you. Uh, what, things are changing, especially with social media, and uh, online, you're talking about Amazon, and things are totally different. What do you think are the top three things for businesses out there to look for to succeed in the next few years of business? Business
1: generally or consumer product companies specifically? Let's say consumer
0: product companies.
1: Yeah, I think um, as the world gets smaller, as technology brings us all closer and closer together, I think developing relationships with those consumers become even more difficult. And, and let, me, let, me, let me clarify on that. It used to be that you could advertise on NBC, CBS, and ABC and hit something like 80% of the American population, you know, because you had basically three three television stations. Well, then, you know, cable television comes along and, and uh, print advertising goes crazy and, and traditional media has been so diluted that a lot of these consumer product companies shifted their spending inside the store. And it was these, you know, point of sale programs and it was in-store television networks and, and they're trying to... bring that message into the store and talk to the consumer at the point of purchase. And then the internet comes along and you've got... Changed everything. Oh, and it continues to change things. You've got bloggers with millions of followers who have become authorities overnight on certain categories of products and lifestyles, etc. Media has become so fragmented that um, it is becoming increasingly difficult to develop meaningful relationships with consumers. And that's really the biggest challenge is... How do you develop a relationship with a set of consumers that almost force a retailer to sell your product because you've got all these rabid fans that are coming to those stores yeah. looking for the product?
0: You were talking. Uh, I saw in your blog for selling to the masses with Amazon. They what is the new thing they're doing? The hour delivery. Yeah. Tell me how, how do they even expect to do that? What is, what is that about?
1: Well, in th- I think the story that we um, that we posted was about uh, in in Manhattan they've got uh, bicycle riders essentially it's a courier service that are able within within a certain set of zip codes yeah they're able to expedite delivery you know within within one hour and I've long said and and again this goes back to you know personal bias or or whatever but uh, shopping is uh, is a real hassle and it's something that if I didn't it's kind of like sleep as an entrepreneur if I didn't have to do it I wouldn't do it (laughs) right I mean I loathe the idea of having to sleep, right? Shopping is the same way. And, and you know, I've got so many friends that get up day after Thanksgiving and, and they'll go to the stores and they'll be shoulder to shoulder with all these strangers, people that they don't know, fighting over a $30 bicycle. And I'm like, I would rather sit at home with my coffee and wait for the amazing deals Click online and have somebody bring it to my doorstep. And yeah. so I think at the point that uh, I think that there will always be people who – uh, you know find some sort of joy, entertainment, whatever in the shopping experience. And I think that you know retailers like Sam's Club and Costco they're really limited assortment, really well known for kind of those treasure hunt items. you know you go to the club and you, you find something that surprises you. Yeah I think, I think that style of retailing will always have a place. but for buying your your milk and, and bread and sugar and you know when I lived in Tokyo and this has been 12 years ago, you know the first thing we did when we moved into this um, to this house they brought us a catalog and said you know li- limited assortment catalog from a grocery store and they said you know call this number speak to someone in English place your order and, and we'll deliver your groceries um, you know later that day and so there was no reason for us to ever go to the grocery store except you know if you needed to make something and you're out of it you know just the, those 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 hotshot trips if you will so i think the the most precious thing in the American consumers life is time and, uh, right. So time is money, time is money, you know, And, and so anything we can do to get our time back, I think that's the real risk for brick and mortar retailers is how do you, how do you keep customers coming into these enormous stores to do their shopping when they can go online, find everything that they want, because the online store has got unlimited assortment. You find exactly what you want at, Prices that would be at or below what you pay in store. You can have it delivered same day, even within hours, and not pay a premium. That's a no-brainer.
0: And and that's what people my age are doing. The millennials, they they grew up with the Internet, and they just want to be able to click a button and have it. And you're right. It's trying to get the people into the store, get the experience. But I I see it's going to be difficult, especially with time going on. People are going to want it a lot easier. And we're getting lazier.
1: Yeah, I've heard analysts. Well, yeah, I, lazy. I, I I think I think we're so busy that if we had to choose between watching our kids play soccer and and picking up dry cleaning and yeah. going grocery shopping, it's really more about value than what you like value more. What we value, right? And so th- there have been some analysts that have said that you know these enormous super centers that Walmart built in the '90s and and you know in the '2000s. Uh, were their greatest asset. These Enormous stores, do a hundred million dollars, many of them yeah. plus a year in sales. Those enormous stores could, at some point, become Walmart's greatest liability because shoppers just don't don't want to shop that way anymore. Yeah. And so, my wife last night, you know, we needed. She had a short list of groceries, and um, you know, we've got five Walmart stores within. 10 miles of our house you know neighborhood markets and yep. super centers and so she was able to go two miles down the road to a walmart neighborhood market get in and and get out and and that's just it. like that
0: yeah they've made it a lot easier uh so I, I always ask in the show i just want to ask a few questions about you and yeah. your rituals uh what are some rituals that you have every day that help you become more productive or habits that you do
1: you know, I have um, become more product, uh, more protective rather of my of my schedule. It's really easy to give away all your time. You I know. know in in meetings, in yeah. you know, and um,
0: that's why. I thank you for coming in. Today. Yeah, no,
1: this is. I've, I've looked forward to this, and uh, and it's been fun. But I've I've become so protective of my schedule. I, I sleep about four hours a night. I worked until three this morning. Yep, and and that's not atypical. I mean you, you spend all day as an entrepreneur, um, helping other people get their things done. And then you've got a certain window of time that often goes into the early morning hours to get yeah. your own things done. And so in terms of a best practice, I would say, um, get control of your schedule quickly. It's really easy to get, you know, a, a coffee meeting here and a lunch meeting there and a mentorship, At least to a few there, hours like and that. you've given away an entire day. And, um, That's why I always
0: say have a good schedule because you get sidetracked. And like you said, if you say yes to everything, you're never going to get your own stuff
1: done. Right. And you find yourself, you know, doing breakfast at the drive through, missing workouts, you're not sleeping enough. And it's just it's not a a lifestyle that you can perpetuate forever.
0: Yeah. Who are your mentors uh, in the past years and how have they impacted where you are today and what you're doing?
1: You know, I had, a, I had a group of people, and by the way, I've worked for some amazing people over the years, and I've got some great mentors today. But I'll tell you that the, the most impactful mentors that I had in my life were my first job as a 15-year-old boy. I worked at a place, I worked at a theme park, of all things, in, in Branson, Missouri. It's called Silver Dollar City. And um, I was extremely fortunate because the people I worked with in this little retail shop Uh, one was a a retired district manager from Safeway one was a retired chemical engineer from Dow one was a retired postmaster one was a, a retired business owner so I got to spend all of my time around people who had accomplished a lot in their own right and they they always challenged me you know to to you know work harder and and take care of customers and the district manager from Safeway would stand behind me at the register and make sure I was counting back the change. So just being held to a really high standard at a young age created in me this desire to do things right. And um,
0: Yeah, that's why you want to be around like-minded people. I always say surround yourself with people and make sure I always want to be the dumbest guy in the room Mm. because I can be the average of all these smart people. And you look at people that have made success and achieved goals that you want to succeed in, and watch how they did it. Learn from them.
1: Right. And then go forward. You look at every successful business person in, in much of American history. I mean, Sam Walton is a perfect example. The, the reason that he was successful, so successful, and creating in a single generation the world's largest company uh, was because he surrounded himself with incredibly talented, ambitious, yeah. hardworking, committed people.
0: You look at all his success. I mean, Sam Walton has achieved, I mean, a lot of things and right. created one of the biggest companies out there but anybody that has done that you're right they're around people that can help them in any area that they don't have expertise in it's really you don't have to be the smartest guy you just got to know the smartest people
1: right yeah most people don't wouldn't think about this but if sam walton were still alive and he, he died a relatively you know young man if if he were still alive today he would be worth about twice what the world's richest man is worth
0: wow what is a lowest point in your life that you had i always ask people this yeah what was the lowest point, and how did you overcome it?
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I've been in, in business for myself for ten years. I left Walmart in two thousand and five, um, and been involved in a handful of startups. And without exception, I mean, most of those businesses have done extremely well. But I caught the real estate bug in <laughs> two thousand and seven, and you know, flipped a a house in three weeks and made great money and went right back in and bought a house and bought property and bought a warehouse and uh, ended up with a lot of inventory at the top of the market. And uh, getting rid of that property created not only financial strain, but tremendous distraction from running a company. And so if I could undo any, you know, decision that I've made from a professional standpoint, it would be, you know, follow Warren Buffett's investment model and focus on the things that you understand. You know, clearly I didn't know anything about real estate investment. A lot of people were doing it and making it look easy. And, um, I thought, well, let's give it a try.
0: So, so do what you know, do what you know. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and so if true.
1: you're, and if you're gonna, if you're gonna step outside that, uh, make sure that you don't play with money that you can't afford to lose.
0: Yeah. Live don't live beyond your means, right? What would you consider your greatest skill today, after all these years of experience and learning? Oh gosh, that's
1: a that's a that's a good question. I've always had uh, a, a great ability to get things done, yep. And I think the success that I enjoyed at Walmart was um, less about you know intellect and more about. Um, just getting things done. You know, there were some great leaders at Walmart that were about just knocking down walls and it wasn't always pretty. Yeah. But, uh, but they, they made things happen. And uh, I think that's for me, I've always been an idea guy, but there are a lot of idea guys. I think my, that my, my own uniqueness is really just an ability to get a lot of things execution, done. Yeah.
0: Which is good. Yeah. Without execution, you get nowhere. what, are three books your top three books that you've read, and you would suggest others?
1: Yeah, well, it it wouldn't surprise you, maybe, um, that uh, I don't read as much as
0: or or listen to audio. Yeah. because no, I do no, audio. No, no. No. I get it. Now I get
1: it. I I am probably more likely to be found skimming the latest issue of Inc. or Forbes yeah. or Fast Company. However, um, I, I thought about your question, and um, there are a handful of books that I have read several times i go back and reread them um uh, and so i'll date myself a little bit but uh jim kramer has has got a a, a book uh, called confessions of a street addict that is that's great donald trump's first book art of the deal is really yet good to read that one. oh it's a great book and um, and i'm a fan of walter isaacson i think he did a good job with steve jobs i think uh his new book called the innovators it's really kind of a history of information technology yes yeah. uh, really well done
0: i did now, was that the? I listened to the audio tape for Steve Jobs. Was it the 21 hour one or was that a different uh, book? Oh, I, I read you it. Read it's it. the big one, yeah. It's anymore. I, I listen. I'm driving all the time yeah. doing these long drives. I, I got to listen to it. It's hard yeah. for me to sit down and read. Yeah. Uh, my last, last question, question I ask everybody on the show. Sure. What are your top three successful tips to give to other young entrepreneurs out there? People that are listening. Your tips that can help them in their life doing whatever it is, whether business, trying to. Run a marathon, succeed in life. What do you suggest?
1: Yeah, first and foremost, um, I think for anybody to leave the the comfort and secure relative security of uh, of a career to start a business, make sure that you, it's something that you really, really want and need. I, I had so many people when I left Walmart uh, to start my first company that left the company to because they thought what I was doing looked fun and looked sexy and looked easy Yeah, because I think that there's this perception that entrepreneurs, you know, work from nine to three and then play golf and then they're off at noon on is Fridays. That true? And uh, I, so I think that there's this, this uh, idea that, you know, we don't work very much. We make tons of money uh, and it's an easy life. And the fact of the matter is I've never had, you know, slept less, uh, had more stress uh, more worry, more concern about things that can go wrong because you lose that safety net of a big company. So that's the first thing I would say is make sure that you're doing it because you know as a 10 year old boy, I knew that I wanted to run my own company. And it took me you know 25 years to figure out what yeah. that company would be. But I knew, and even while I was at Walmart, as much fun as I was having, as much as I was learning, I always kind of felt like like Steve Jobs' famous speech at Stanford, uh, I felt like I was living someone else's life, yeah. and so when I finally broke away and started doing my own thing, I was like, "Yep, this is what I'm supposed to be doing." So that's that's one. Make sure that you you really want to do it because there's so many easier ways to to make money. The second thing is uh, incremental is the only way to go. It's you, you hear very f- few stories about people that have gone from you know zero to sixty in two point eight seconds. It is a it is a slog. Um, it's a marathon. It, it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and, um, and, a, and a lot of capital. And the third thing I would say is if I were to go back over the last 10 years as an entrepreneur and back 15 years before that professionally uh, at Walmart, the majority of the, of the mistakes that I have made have been uh, with respect to people. Uh, you've got to be really slow to, to hire and really fast to fire.
0: You're the second, second person, person that to say that. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. so true.
1: Yeah, that's right. And as an entrepreneur, it is so. You just have to realize that there is nobody else who is going to wake up in the morning as excited, and as committed, uh, and as focused about your business as you are. So you can spend, you know, your days frustrated because you can't get people where you are, or you can just embrace it. And um, so people, be really, really careful about the people you bring into your organization.
0: That's awesome. Uh, So I want to talk before we get going here. Uh, You have coming up CPG School. And tell me, when is that?
1: Yeah, so this is our second event. We had our first back in um, November of 14, sold it out, relatively small venue. And uh, our next event is April 8th and 9th, being held in the Walmart Auditorium uh, on the campus of Northwest Arkansas Community College, April 8th and 9th. Uh, 15 speakers uh, during the first day. We'll have a reception that evening. We'll bring in hundreds of people from uh, the community, buyers, uh, people who work for major suppliers, service providers, manufacturers, representatives. And then for the CPG companies, we've got a second day's worth of activity that includes uh, facilities tours and some breakout sessions. And we're even doing an event that we call speed dating, where we'll have uh, a big room full of tables and there'll be uh, manufacturers reps that uh, have expertise in different categories and the entrepreneurs will be able to take their product from table to table to table and interact with these companies and just help them select a potential partner
0: that's awesome I, uh, I gotta say I experienced CBG school back was that in November November I uh, it changed my life it was the best investment I had seriously the people that you meet the knowledge you learn especially for a young company even if you're not a consumer product company maybe you're a manufacturer whatever it is you gain networks, and it leads to other business. Hmm.
1: The cool thing about this upcoming event is not only can you attend in, in person in Bentonville, but if you can't get away, uh, we're also making a live stream available. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. so you can register and tune in from so anywhere in the you world. You anywhere can in, the, in the whole world.
0: So once you stream that, can you play that over again? It'll too? be archived. That's right. Wow, that <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I'm the kind of guy that likes to travel, but if you can't, that makes it perfect for anybody. So yeah. no reason not to miss it well that's awesome uh, looking forward to it next month for cpg school thank you matt for coming on the show thank a you. lot of good uh information for the viewers and uh hey uh love always always love talking to you yeah likewise thank you very hey, much thanks matt talk to you later hey guys i hope you enjoyed today's show i just want to give you a reminder to check out cpg school it's at cpgschool.com i went to cpg school back in november and it was a serious game changer for my company It talks about product development, the speakers are people that have worked in Walmart, have worked in other successful companies, and they give you insight on how to get your product on the shelves of big name retail outlets. And not only that, they give you a lot of great advice for your business or you personally. So this is seriously the mastermind group of everything. This is, I don't know how to explain it. It changed my life, but... Check it out. You can either go to Northwest Arkansas April 8th and 9th and attend the conference, which I would highly suggest. I'm going to be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Or if you can't make it, that's all right. You can still live stream it. They're allowing you to download this to your computer or watch live. So what you do is go to cpgschool.com and when you go to check out, put in the code ArcticStick. You put in the promotional code arctic stick that's a-r-c-t-i-c-s-t-i-c-k you'll get a 10 percent discount so that's right i'll give you guys a 10 percent discount if you put in that promotional code arctic stick trust me guys you're not going to regret it you're going to learn so much there that you cannot gain in any kind of book so check it out but in the meantime guys you know what time it is it's time to go out there create something great and become unforgettable life's too short not to I'm Brandon Adams. We'll talk to you guys later.